Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Dan Lina, man of a thousand ventures and currently senior lecturer and director of law and technology initiatives at Northwestern. I've had the pleasure of speaking to Dan's class on a number of occasions, and it always makes me feel optimistic about the future of the profession. Stick around and learn how and why Dan moved from IT to the legal profession, how he brings uh, multiple disciplines, including law, engineering, and medicine together, and why he thinks quality measurement is the next wave in legal. For those of you interested, you can follow Dan on Twitter at at DanLinna. I'm joined today by Dan Lina from uh, Northwestern uh, University Law School and the man of a thousand ventures. Dan, how are you? Thanks for joining us today. Uh, doing great, Steve. Uh, really happy to join you. Yeah. How's uh, pandemic life treating you? I have to say that I, I know I, I count my blessings every day. I feel really fortunate to be able to do a lot of the things that I was doing before the pandemic here on Zoom. And, uh, you know, on WebEx and, and these platforms. And I traveled a lot before the pandemic and I had a lot of travels planned. But if, I've just been here in Streeterville pretty much the whole pandemic. But it's amazing what you can do online and the people you can reach. And uh, so I, I count myself as quite fortunate to be able to keep doing a lot of the things that I've already been doing. That's great. How have your students adjusted to, I assume you're, you're mostly virtual teaching. How have your students adjusted to uh, life as a virtual environment as opposed to coming in and doing the hands-on teaching? Yeah, you know, uh, I think they've adjusted very well and things have gone very well. I do think that this is hard for a lot of people, right? This is, and, and right. uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I'm sure in the firm, you have a lot of people who um, it's difficult. Uh, you know, my wife, Andrea, and I even just, uh, she's a partner in a law firm at McGuire Woods. And, you know, just even us in this two-bedroom apartment in Streeterville here, figuring out how to also not, all of a sudden run our businesses, so to say, out of this two-bedroom apartment. I don't know how people who have kids, uh, I don't know how they're doing it. And, uh, you know, our students, it's a lot of time on, on Zoom. And I think it's worked better, a lot better than people thought, right? And the classes go pretty well. But the other aspects of it that are just, uh, you know, the dealing with day-to-day -day life and on-campus interviewing haven't been shift to January this year with the start of the second semester and a lot of stress and everything around that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting how we sort of, what normal looks like when we revert to something else, right? Do you think there'll still be hybrid teaching at, at school? Do you think you'll ever go back to just the way it was a year ago? It's hard to believe it's only been a year, right? Feels like forever. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no way it'll ever go back. And now I'm biased. I'm trying to push things in a direction where it'll I, never I go back. I know you are. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to me, I think this is ought to open up the amazing possibilities for all of us. And, you know, we're on WebEx right now and we've been together on Zoom before, like these platforms, right. it's amazing. But we're just scratching the surface of what's possible here. Um, you know, I've heard uh, from other folks who are developing these platforms saying they aim to make it 10 times better than what we can do in person. Well, how do they do that? 
Well, there's all this data you can gather. There's ways you could allow people to pull in information. You can do analytics on how people are doing in these meetings and, and who's getting a chance to talk, different things like that. And you know, I think the things we're doing at Northwestern, it's just uh, all of us are thinking about what have we learned from this that we can, when we go back in this world, we'll continue using the virtual setting for gatherings, for um, you know, asynchronous content, but then we're also learning more about what is it that we do when we get together in person that really adds the unique value of being together in person? And how do we make sure that we leverage these different platforms for the unique value that they contribute to the, for the things we're doing? Yeah, that's an interesting lesson, isn't it? Because as you think about what technology can do versus what's uniquely human, you know, the need for interpersonal relationships, the empathy, the connection piece, yet other pieces can be done by technology. And this is what I'm hearing you say is this, this pandemic has sort of accelerated that look at what technology, because look, these video streaming platforms, it's not really new technology. I mean, we've had video conferencing before. The utilization and the data gathering is all new. It's been accelerated by the pandemic. It'll be interesting to see how you guys resolve that hybrid nature of the of the change that's going on. So it'll yeah. be cool. Well, one thing I would connect this with just real quick, Steve, is, is you guys do a lot at SciFarth on project management, and I'm a huge fan of the work you do. I think that's not the norm around the legal industry. And I hear people say, well, gee, Zoom meetings really stink. You know, they're terrible. I'm like, well, most people, their in-person meetings are terrible too, right? And so if you learn how to run a good meeting, right. uh, actually, there's ways you can design and use Zoom that... Um, could really help make your meetings better and make sure everyone has a chance to participate, uh, use different brainstorming techniques and tools and breakout rooms. There's actually a lot of possibility here, but it really comes back to stuff like, sure, text a tool, but if you don't have good operations people or good project management and think about how to design the experience, well, yeah, it's not gonna be very good. Yeah, you know, and it, it, it's also, you hit an interesting point where when you're when people are looking at technology, they particularly in the legal space, they're looking at it as is it perfect? Is it you know is it hitting is the error rate zero? Well, the error rate when humans do it is never zero. The, as right. you say, the question isn't whether it's the perfect system. The question is whether it's as good or better than what we had had before. Um, one of the hallmarks of the work you've been doing. Dan at Northwestern and through all the other ventures is, is we're sort of hitting on it now a little bit is sort of working across disciplinary lines, sort of this multidisciplinary approach. So for example, I know you've got some joint programs with the School of Engineering, Computer Sciences, Medicine at Northwestern. Talk, talk to me a little bit about those programs, sort of what was their genesis and what are, what are they and what, what are they designed to do? Yeah, well, I guess just for me personally, the interest arose because I'd, I'd always been kind of a, a programmer, coder. I enjoyed doing that kind of work. And, and I actually worked in information technology before I went to law school. I started with just designing websites and things like that. But I worked for a group of companies where I built enterprise information systems, uh, writing code in SQL Server, designing relational databases, writing process logic to automate different tasks in the office, things like that. And I had this fascination uh, with using this tech, but then I got to law and it was kind of like, eh, we don't do those things. Well, hang on. So what, what caused you to want to go into law school from 
from from working for a living and something that created useful services for the for the for society decide to become a lawyer what what did you go insane what happened <laughs> well you know i think my story is probably uh like the story a lot of people tell where i grew up in the upper peninsula of michigan and i didn't know any lawyers i grew up on a farm actually my my, my dad was in education and, and my mom also played a role in education and ended up going into social work and counseling later on but uh, I always just thought, wow, like if you're a lawyer, right, like then then you've done something. And <laughs> I didn't I didn't really even know what that meant, really. Uh, you know, so when I got I mean, I remember being in law school and people were describing transactional law practice. And I was kind of like, well, that's just business, isn't it? That's not lawyering. Right. I just didn't, uh, <laughs> but um, it was just like the allure of, of being in the law was what. It, well, then there's also the kind of the. Other thing, it's like, oh well, you enjoy debating and arguing. You'd be a good lawyer, right? So you oh, there you go. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> so that's how we end up being litigators, right? I mean, it just reinforces that, uh, you know, sense that we've got something maybe that would be useful in that, you know, in that career aspiration. Right. How did your uh, so you go into law school, and you sort of touched on this a little bit. You you came out of a programmer computer IT focused career for at least a period of time before going to law school. Did you find the the law school experience sort of strangely nonlinear for you? Because I I I, I would I would suspect your world the world of IT is a much more linear world, a much more analytical, logic based world than than law. Was that a was that a hard thing for you to adapt to uh, the way they taught law, the way they approached it, or was, or did you find enough similarities that you're able to draw on that experience as an IT guy for help in law school? Yeah. Well, I think the, the rigor and discipline that I took to, and I'd, and I'd gotten a master's degree in public policy and administration as well. So I was getting training in econometrics and, and evaluation. And I took some of that rigor into my law studies, but there was an aspect of it that really frustrated me. And even in practice, and this gets to the quality stuff you were talking about, this mm -hmm. idea that in technology, I would test things. And, and if you said, this is the goal, this is what it needs to do, I could build something and I could say, look, it, this, it produces what you're looking for. It does what you're asking for. And uh, the, the, the being in law and just kind of like always feeling like, I don't know if this is good. I mean, Steve said it was good, but then, you know, Sally said it's not very good. And you know, I, I'm just not <laughs> right. sure, you know. But. Right. So as you're thinking about quality and you wrote a chapter in Roland Vogel's book on, mm -hmm. on, yeah. on quality and you, you had an interesting, uh, I'll, I'll read something from your, your chapter because I found the quote interesting. Uh, you, you talk about the setup is you're talking about people worrying too much about what the future holds and what will happen to us. And you say, it's up to us to imagine the future we want to have, identify the obstacles in our path and do the work to create our better future. The obstacles you're talking about, I presume, are those like you've just discussed, which is how do you know what's good legal work? Have you thought about what those obstacles are and, and sort of what are the ones that need to be overcome to do a better job of identifying and measuring quality in the, in the legal space? 
Yeah. Yeah. I have thought about that a lot. And, you know, in a way, in a meta sort of way here, I was kind of mirroring lean thinking, Toyota Kata, this idea of, you know, right. what's, where are you going? Where are you now? And how are you going to get there? And oftentimes we jump to conclusions and make assumptions of what it's going to take to get us there. But we've got to, so to say, run these experiments, right? And But to know where to start, we need to understand what are the obstacles in our space. And the lack of uh, there having been a quality movement in law is a big obstacle. And when I compare law to medicine, people say, yeah, but you know, medicine, that's that's already sciencey and there's biology there. It's like, well, wait a second, let's look back at history. And and about 120 years ago, medicine looked a lot like law. And it was very much a community of practice and, and there were norms in the way you did things. And it turned out we looked at some of those things in medicine and found out, wait, we're doing some things that actually produce really bad outcomes and we shouldn't do them anymore. So medicine became evidence-based and there's been quality movements in medicine about applying Lean Six Sigma and, and how do we measure the quality? Lots of people doing work on that, creating standards. And then law, we've kind of muddled along and, and we've just never really become evidence-based in that same sort of way. And I think a lot of people will push back and say, well, yeah, but Dan, you know, the first amendment and that's, it's like, okay, sure. There's constitutional law and that mixes in politics. And there's some aspects of law that, that aren't like um, like what you'd think of uh, that you would uh, apply linear regression to or something like that as to, to model the, the outcomes maybe. But there's a lot of what we do that is more like engineering um, or, or science and discovering knowledge. We're just not very disciplined about uh, or rigorous about how we build that knowledge and, and measure whether something is effective, whether it's good. What, what are the outcomes that we're trying to produce even? Yeah, it's. It, uh, I'm fascinated by that uh, description again because it's such classic lawyer to to pull out the five percent or ten percent or the one percent <laughs> those unique circumstances to argue against a a larger base of facts or cases or things that can be systematized. Are there are there industries you look at other than medicine for guidance for this? I mean. For example, you have hospitality industry that's known for their quality programs where they're dealing with what people like and don't like what they're prepared to pay for. Have you sort of thought through other examples that might lend us some, some teaching for law? That's a really good question. I mean, I think there is so much for us to learn about medicine, and I've been spending a lot of time talking to colleagues in the medical school here um about just how has this evolved and and i think even in law we kind of like there are a couple of groups that are thinking about standards and measuring things now and some folks writing about it a handful of people but we need 10 times the number maybe 100 times the number doing that research and thinking and looking at all the places uh, from where we can learn I, I have no doubt there's other industries there's other professions um, from whom we can learn i think what's helpful about looking at medicine is that it's you know one of the the learned professions and and you can kind of see the doctor playing this a similar role as the lawyer um, and there's so much we can learn about just thinking about not just even patient service or the healthcare service but just just plain old outcomes just looking at you know if we if we even there too right just the, the idea the standards right now we don't have great ways of describing the different things lawyers do that's improving we have these uniform task based management system 
Uh, many people are coming up with, with better systems than that to precisely describe what's being done and then also train their lawyers to code things in a better way so we actually understand what was done. Um, but right. you know, imagine medicine if, if every heart procedure was just described as you know heart surgery. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay, um, you, you wouldn't have very good data that would help you understand what's actually being done and, and whether uh, some particular procedure was success or what the likelihood of success should be and, and so on. No, I think, I think that's right. And, and you have had a problem with lawyers using coding correctly, you know, it falls under the dreaded other category. Yeah. And, and how can you measure if you're not sort of tracking it to begin with? One of the, we started down this path by talking about your work across disciplines and with engineering and technology and that veered into your background. But what have you learned from, from sort of, I've, I've noticed there being communication challenges between different skill sets, whether it's medicine and law, law and computer science, computer science and engineering. We seem to have different languages and different belief structures. How, what have you learned in terms of managing the communications and getting those disciplines to work together? Because we live in a much more multidisciplinary profession now than ever before. And I think people need to learn how to cross those lines and draw the benefit from each other. Give us a little bit about what you've learned from doing that. Yeah, I think I agree with you completely. And one of the reasons why I was so attracted to Northwestern is there's a history of interdisciplinary work here. And there had already been a foundation put into place uh, between the law school and the business school and the engineering school and the medical school. There's some classes in place already. And I've been able to pick up on that. And we've been putting more classes in place, a lot more engagement, having these discussions. It's a lot of work. It's it's difficult. It's, it's a lot easier in some ways to just uh, stay in our comfortable silo. And, you know, you and I, Steve, could talk about litigation and the federal rules of civil procedure and motions to dismiss and uh, computer oh, collectors. Please, please, please not. Let's please not do that. Um, but, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, wow, I, I'm really deep there. I feel comfortable. I feel smart right. when I'm talking about those things. Boy, when, when some computer scientist talks about machine learning, I kind of feel dumb. I feel vulnerable to say, I don't understand what you're talking about. And That's a tough feeling for lawyers, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tough feeling for everyone, but I think especially in law, we reward people oftentimes. Uh, you're, you're supposed to be the smartest person in the room. And I think that, um, you know, we maybe sometimes reward people for talking with a lot of certainty and don't apply a lot of scrutiny to maybe what they're saying. And people get this sense that like, okay, I can either be, I can be loud and, and show people I'm correct, or I just don't, I don't dare expose my ignorance. And that's not good for learning. It's not good for interdisciplinary work. Do you, yeah, it is a tendency my lawyers, if you speak really loud and in sonorous tones, people think you know what you're talking about. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a trick yeah, we yeah. learn early on in our career. <laughs> um, as you, are you attracting the students in the law school who, who come into these joint programs with you? Are you attracting people with a different mindset than a normal law student? Or are you encountering this dynamic you're talking about and if you're encountering this dynamic of having to sort of help people get over their hesitancy to be exposed to things they don't know about or aren't expert in, how have you dealt with that in terms of getting the students comfortable getting out of their comfort zone? 
Yeah, I think it's all about creating. This goes back to even running a meeting, right? If you if you mm-hmm. run a meeting in a way that you better not ask a question that was a you know a dumb question or that was <laughs> then that's you're not then people aren't going to speak up. So trying to create these 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 spaces where we're coming to it with with um, some curiosity about how things work and and uh, that's that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. And it so it requires people who who foster that and try to to draw people out, right? Um, um, you know, one of the benefits of the Socratic method is this idea of you do get people to engage and you bring them out. Now you don't have to engage in the Socratic method to get people engaged, uh, but you can figure out ways, mechanisms, and the way you design even a course or or a, a program, a meeting that make it easier for people to share what they're thinking, what they're interested in, and um, have those sort of discussions. Yeah, you know, uh, you you mentioned that you you've been at North. How long have you been at Northwestern now? Four three or five years. years. Three years. Three years. Um, it's a Northwestern is one of those schools that's taken a different approach to legal education. It's it's doing some cool stuff. There there are other law schools, but then there are other law schools that are perhaps more traditional in the way they approach legal education. What is it about the mindset or the culture or the institutional approach that Northwestern has taken that's given you the opportunity to create some of these programs that are that are that are unique and different? Certainly, from what I experienced back a century or so ago when I was in law school. What what is it about the the culture that's helped you do that? Well, first of all, it's all about leadership. And, uh, you know, I was hired by Dan Rodriguez and, and he had some great leaders before him who had really put an emphasis on this. We're going to do stuff with the engineering school. Uh, Dean Julio Tino is, is he talks about whole brain engineering. He embraces this in the engineering school. Uh, so they're leaders who are pushing this forward. Uh, Samira Cooler, the chair of the computer science department, right? He embraces this, is excited about these opportunities. Uh, Dean Urocco came after Dean Rodriguez and now, now interim Dean Jim Spetta, right? They they want to see this as, as part of uh, part of our DNA about what we're about, innovation. And the students pick up on that. Just like if you roll out a project management program in the law firm and you do training, but the lawyers don't show up, people see that and they understand, well, this isn't actually important. Uh, I know what's actually important. Just put my head down and bill hours. That's what's important, not this other stuff. The students pick up on that quick, right? I mean, they they mm-hmm. start getting a sense what the leadership really values. And and I think we've created this environment where the students understand and, and see the value and, and they understand what's happening in the marketplace. Um, we bring in people like you and others who talk about what's happening in the marketplace to keep improving that culture. And so that's that's just a huge part of it. And the interest in these classes has been great. And we're, we're uh, my AI and legal reasoning class that I taught in the fall was, was maxed out. We were able to bring in a lot of people to talk to the students for them to learn about it. And I think we got to keep, we're still working on changing this perception. And I think too many people think about this as this is some alternative path. And what I keep trying to drive home is that if you want to be a successful partner at Seifarth, at Kirkland, at Skadden, at, you know, I can go on and on down the list. This is going to help you in your career. Things are changing in the legal industry. Understanding about, you know, people process data technology, understanding how technology is being used in the ground. 
it's, it can help differentiate you. And I think more and more law firms, right? Part of the other thing that I hear sometimes from people is like, yeah, but Dan, they're just going to be a junior lawyer. They're not going to be leading any teams. They're not going to be making decisions. So this won't really actually be important to them until their fifth year or so. I agree, disagree completely. And um, I hope what you could report to me, Steve, is that the culture being created in forward-thinking firms are that we want to empower these junior lawyers. We want you thinking from day one. How can I improve the experience for the client? Who is the client? What's the client's problem? What is it that we do well do for them to provide value for them? And how can we use you know, our skills, our people process data technology skills to improve the services we deliver for them? So this is about being the traditional lawyer and being a better traditional lawyer for the future. There are these, these um, non-traditional lawyer paths and there are also um, you know, the, the, the kind of like outside of the lawyering altogether, the alternative paths. But uh, I, our students are, are, are seeing that and buying into it. And some of them have a tech background. Many of them do not. They come to my class, Professor Lena, you know, you know, I was an English major before. Am I going to be able to, to handle this class? Like, yes. Like we, we're teaching this in a way that, that you can choose paths even within the class, right? That you can uh, get the foundation you need or you can, uh, you already have the foundation, you go beyond that. And we're having more and more success recruiting students who say, you know, I've, I'm building machine learning, pro I'm, I'm working on machine learning projects in, in some of these big companies you talk about, uh, that these big tech companies, I want to come get a, a law degree at a place like Northwestern so I can really leverage that, you know, expertise. Yeah, you know, um, you, you make an interesting point about the culture within law firms that you're, as you release your students out into the wild, um, in our own, our own experiences that, working with, I, I work with our tech R&D function now at the firm. And a lot of the best ideas and a lot of the champions we have are from the associate faith and not necessarily the more mm -hmm. senior associates, but the, the less senior associates who are actually in the trenches, doing the work, seeing the opportunities for improvement. Um, and I think that's happening more and more about in law firms, but it's clearly not 100%. Do you talk to your students, the ones that are going into private practice? There's a certain persistence that they're going to need to help overcome roadblocks, to overcome obstacles in the private practice. No, I do it this way. Just do it the way I tell you kind of stuff. Is there a component or have you thought, of, if not, have you thought about building a component into, I guess I don't even know where it would fall within legal education about how to overcome resistance, how to be a change agent in law firms, because I think this wave of people you're starting to release out into law firms can be powerful change agents within the industry if they're prepared to stick with it and overcome the obstacles. Do you, do you talk about that or have you thought about talking about that? Yeah, well, I do talk about that and I make sure to, uh, as I was talking with them about getting prepared for on-campus interviews, for example, I told them that there will be, you will have to try to gauge the receptiveness of some of the people who are talking to you to talk about these things. They may be very interested because they're hearing their clients ask about project management or how AI is being used. And that could be a great way to differentiate yourself that you've had this class and you've thought about it. I, I really try to connect it closely to practice. I mean, having been a, a equity partner in a law firm, right? I understand what the, what, what, how it works at the end of the day. I mean, and, uh, you know, 
one of the, so I guess what I'd love to highlight here is just a, a tool that I've tried to use. And I don't know if it's the right tool, but I really try to introduce different frameworks that can help our students really, that they can apply then in the real world and, and um, help them think about how to use this knowledge you're acquiring. And that's the Lean Canvas. And, and this gets back to, again, um, you know, I don't know that I had a sound understanding of this when I started at Honigman many years ago. I kind of thought, well, I'm the lawyer now and I'm going to have, uh, I remember one of the first clients I worked with was General Motors. And I thought, well, I'm going to be talking to some business person and I know the law and they're going to you know, look to me as their, as their counselor. Right. And I found out really quickly. They're going to listen, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, no, I don't understand how it works. Like they have their own team of lawyers, a very large team of lawyers, very senior experience. I'm still like low man at the totem pole completely. Right. And, uh, but getting them, what I've been telling my students is I, I don't want you to have uh, this misperception that you can just show up and talk about AI and someone's going to say, well, that sounds interesting. Why don't you lead a project on that? But if you show up and you can, you've done a lean canvas, even for example, in a way where you can speak in terms of, hey, I understand what you do as a law firm. And I know something about who your customers are. And I actually know what some of their problems, what those clients' problems are. Mm -hmm. And I kind of understand what you do, what why they come to you and they don't go to a, you know, an, a, an alternative legal service provider or a different law firm. I kind of get what what your value proposition is. I mean, if you could speak to so, another lawyer at a law firm, like a law student can can speak in that way to understand what the firm really does and 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 the way they think about their their clients and the clients' problems, that to me is a game changer, and it's an understanding that'll serve them really well in their career. What uh, you've now got a few. I know it's early days, given that you've sort of been at this three years at Northwestern, but you've now got some students. I presume that have been now in the real world. Uh, I assume, I presume some working for law firms, some in-house legal departments, some government jobs. Have you sort of kept in touch with them? Sort of what what successes have they had? Sort of using some of these tools. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that. Uh, so it really started at Michigan State, where we had quite a few students who were able to use their training in this space um, to open doors to firms that they otherwise would not have had easy access to, firms that were not coming to East Lansing, Michigan and doing on-campus interviewing. And some of those opportunities were to be traditional lawyers in, in the organizations. Um, and some of them were doing things like project management or, or knowledge management or legal engineering, building technology, things like that. So we've had quite a few students who love what they're doing. And, um, you know, the, I think of the, the, the students who have wanted to have a more traditional path and be a practicing lawyer, right? Just the, the different doors that it's open for them. Uh, it, was, it was immediately apparent when we were at Michigan State, for example, because these firms weren't traditionally recruiting there. And I think where it's making more and more of a difference for our students at Northwestern, where we're fortunate to have a lot of those law firms are already showing up, is just um, opening different sorts of experiences and opportunities up for them. I mean, you've got more, you've got some firms that have specific programs now around looking for students who are, um, who, who have these technology skills, like uh, innovation interns and things like that is part of their summer 
summer program. A few law firms have that. As a matter of fact, in our innovation lab class, Chris Hammond and I yesterday, I'd invited someone from a law firm to join the class and help coach some of our teams who are doing projects. And it turned out, I didn't even know this, that one of my students was like, oh, Professor Lina, I'm actually going to interview with them soon. I just applied for one of those practices. I'm like, wow, perfect. You know, like, uh, but, you know, so there are more and more opportunities that, uh, you know, that's what I think the students are, see these opportunities and really understand how it gives them a chance to I think, you know, I've taught at the University of Michigan and, and even at Michigan State, Northwestern, sometimes we, we the student has landed, hey, I'm, I've got an offer from SciFar, or, you know, I've got an offer from this firm or that firm, and it feels like, you know, mission accomplished. And um, they should feel great about that, but I'm also trying to get them to think about, well, continue to learn about, like, what's the value proposition there, how you can contribute to that, how do you show up and differentiate yourself, yourself from all those other new associates, and, right. uh, you know think beyond just the, the higher date kind of as you see these changes happening dan and as you begin to as a curriculum of many law schools begins to slowly change you guys are ahead of the curve obviously uh to reflect some of those changes do you think the characteristics of the people applying for law school change will you attract people from different backgrounds or have you already seen that change happen um how do you think that'll play out as, as, as time goes forward in terms of composition of law schools for the student population? Yeah, I think, I mean, my bet for the future, and certainly not everyone agrees to me with me, but I think everyone's going to have to have a functional understanding of data science, data science methods, AI. I mean, I just can't imagine. What, what do you mean by functional understanding? Because there's so a debate about, do you have to be a coder? Do you have right, to... right, right. Well, I think it's great to learn to write a little bit of code, like learning a little bit of Python. I don't think it's absolutely required. I think by doing that, you start developing a functional understanding of what is computation and how computers work. The problem we have right now is for a lot of lawyers, if a vendor, if a client, if someone on the innovation team comes to them and says, hey, look at this tool I built, it uses AI a lot of them would freeze up and not want to ask a follow-up question. And I think more and more to, if we want to be innovators, if we want to use technology, we've got rules of professional responsibility that talk about our duty of competence, and we've got a lot of obligations that we ought to ask follow-up questions. But more and more for the substantive lawyering that we do, we need to say, whoa, hold on a second. You said it uses AI. What do you mean by that? Is it a rules system? Does it use machine learning? Uh, where did that data come from? Right. So having a just a, a, a functional, how does it work? What are the inputs you need? Um, what? How do you process it? What are the outputs? Uh, is it accurate? Like knowing how to talk and ask questions about kind of what what it is that's being used is is just one example. Yeah, I think that's a that's a challenge we experience on our side, which is if you don't have that level of understanding, people just throw the problem over the transom and say, give me the magic computer yeah. program that fixes the problem. When in fact, what you're looking to do is have a dialogue to try to get to what's the problem? How do we begin to solve it? And what's, what's the art of the possible in technology? Because not everything is possible, as you know, in technology, it, yeah. it can get you part of the way there. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's exactly right. And, and so if we talk about humans plus machines, 
then I think those humans need to have this functional understanding. If I'm the expert litigator uh, at the law firm and I do lots of supply chain litigation like I did, and I say, well, hey, just give me some AI to help make things better. Well, you know, someone who's the, I mean, I'm supposed to be the expert. I understand what provides value, what improves the, you know, the effectiveness of the things I'm doing. If I start learning about AI, I start saying, well, gee, Data is really important for a lot of these things that everyone's talking about. How good is my data? Can I run some experiments with my data? And I think a lot of people are finding out we talk so much about data is a new oil. There's so much data in law. Yeah, it turns out a lot of it is not very good data. <laughs> right, that's right. You know, so, uh, you know, the sooner you realize that every day, right now, every day, there's value just evaporating into the ether because we're not collecting data. Uh, we're not collecting things that would be important. And so the lawyers who kind of, you can start small, you can start with an Excel spreadsheet, right? If you have this understanding of, wow, data is really the foundation for a lot of these tools. Even if you're building a rules system, like having some data that you can kind of figure out what's going on. Um, so that's the sort of functional understanding. And, and I think we need to attract more students who have a background in that there's still plenty, plenty of opportunities for students who are not computer scientists. I just think, you know, we have too many of these conversations where we don't have people with technical expertise in the room. And we need we need more people who have some CS background who come into the law. And then we need to find more ways to get like some of my colleagues in the computer science department in more of these conversations so that they can help us. Just what you said. What's possible? What's not possible? How do we imagine where we want to be in 10, 20, 40, 50 years if we don't have the, the people with the deep expertise working with us to help us understand what might be possible? Might be, might not be possible today, but we're, this is where the, the where computer science and computation is going. And these this is the foundation we would need to, to put in place to help us get there. Yeah, one of the things you, you've done sort of on the data side for the industry is you created something called the legal service innovation index mm -hmm. which i think is a very cool tool what, what what's next for that and and what did you learn about in putting it together in terms of the challenges for gathering the information and the data and the and the inputs into the index uh yeah that project jim sandman really spurred me to do that because he talked at stanford codex we have to do something more than just rank law firms on revenue and profit, and we should rank them on technology adoption. Now, what I've done, I say it's not a ranking and I really am not undertaking the rank, but merely catalog what's going on because I had so many conversations where someone would say, yeah, there's some stuff happening, but really not, nothing's changing, Dan. So just stop this talk about uh, innovation and technology. And so I endeavored to let's collect concrete examples from websites. If someone built a product, if someone has an innovation team, if someone's using project management in a way that they're, they've put on their website to add value for clients, then I'm a, I wanna list it. I wanna catalog this. And I wanna to break it down by the discipline that's driving it, project management, uh, data analytics, AI, what is it? Uh, there's several categories, but then also, what's a substantive practice of law? Cause that was the other thing too, right? People would say like, oh sure, Dan, you know, real estate, you know, but there was pressure on real estate for a while and now they're doing something or, you know, what, whatever, name your practice. Um, and uh, the, but there's change happening in a lot of different practice areas. And it's not surprising because even, uh, you know, whatever we consider the most sophisticated area of law practice, when you deconstruct it, you still find components of it that are, that are the same and opportunities to use these tools. 
So it's been really instructive. It's been helping track the the growth of of you know of these different products, these offerings. I want to do more analysis of the actual data. We've we've been doing that. I, I want to try to create a more of an incentive for the law firms to submit the things they are doing. And so we're working on doing some analysis of specific products. Uh, like quite a few firms have different data breach tools right now. We want to kind of aggregate that and say, hey, we've got X number on the innovation index. Here are the things they do. Oh, by the way, if you've created a data breach tool and it's not on our index, please use the form that we have on the site and, and submit your information. I, th I think it's a great thing because there's a, not only is it providing information that's useful uh, and bring some real-time information into this particular field, which you're right is, is well, this is never happening or this is always happening. We, we tend to rely on extremes. There's also a competitive nature to law firms and to lawyers. And so you begin to see, wait a minute, all these other firms have data breach tools. Why don't we have one? Now, that may not be a very good business reason to develop a data breach tool if it's not fitting into your business, but at least it creates an incentive to ask the question and begin to drive some additional change. So I, I, I think it's a great thing. So very well, cool. you know, well, thanks. Uh, thank you. And, and uh, we have had good participation by law firms. We've done a fair bit of our own just curation, trying to find these instances. It's also meant to be to bring transparency. And I've um, I've had corporate legal departments reach out to me and say, we are going through a convergence process, Dan, and we'd like to pick your brain because we've been looking at the Legal Service Innovation Index and we're interested in seeing in the areas where we're hiring firms, who's doing what, we're interested in seeing what our firm is doing that you've added to this index. And more and more law students, and I've been encouraging law students, this, I mean, this, this system of just judging people on revenue and profits is, is, is a problem. It's a really big problem. And, uh, you know, law schools has its own, have its own version of this problem too, right? Where it's just the hierarchy and pedigree. Uh, but, you know, I don't want my law students to just look at some list and say like, well, this firm is, you know, four spots higher than this firm. So clearly I should go to that firm. No, there's more and more data and information available to us. The innovation index is, is one piece of it. My bet is, the firms who are doing these things and not just the, you know, the criticism about innovation by press release. And that's why I have more on there than just AI tools. You can learn about what are some of the real things that the law firm is doing? How long have they been doing those things? Is it one spot in one department or is it across the department where it looks like they're truly fostering a culture of innovation across the firm? Is there a correlation here, Dan? There's a, there's discussion in the corporate world about, moving from obligation to shareholders to moving from a much more matrixed obligation to stakeholders, meaning sustain, sustainable efforts in the environment, et cetera. And you're, you're right that in the legal industry, the measurement has typically been profits, revenue, the, the, the financial measurements. Do you think there'll come a time when there's a, a more of a, a stakeholder mentality that sets forth in the industry and therefore measurements like the legal uh, service innovation index become even more important in terms of measuring benefits law firms are creating for the broader legal community? Yeah, it's happening right now, I would say, because I think the other thing that's happening in connection with all of this is, is diversity and inclusion efforts. Mm -hmm. And we're measuring more and more on that and not just things like headcounts, but like uh, Catherine Crow, I've been working with her a little bit. She's doing some really great research with Digitory Legal, looking at not just headcounts, but kind of asking, well, who's getting what work and who's actually, is there equitable allocation 
of career advancing opportunities. So this sort of measurement is already happening in diversity and inclusion. And I think we're seeing more and more where, uh, yeah, we, we can, to me, again, the, the tie to Jim Sandman with the Legal Service Innovation Index, this is when he was president of the Legal Services Corporation, is this is gonna improve access to legal services and law and justice for everyone. And um, I'd like to get more and more firms engaged in innovation and working with, with law schools and talking about how, I mean, Cypherth has done some things where you've done things with legal aid around, especially process mm -hmm. improvement and things. I, I think you, you learn when you do those things. How do we create this community where we build the body of knowledge? It helps the law firms, it helps the big corporate legal departments, but it's also gonna help legal aid organizations. And another thing I'm doing some work and research on is the use of technology in courts. And this is a huge opportunity for law firms, law schools, for us to, we should be creating that body of knowledge and we should be working with courts. What do we want the rule of law to look like in 20, 50 or 100 years? That's being decided right now. Like we should be engaging in this and, and helping lead this forward. So I think law firms will be measured on that more and more. It's starting to happen. And it's a huge opportunity. It's like why we came into this profession, right? I mean, that's right. That's absolutely right. Well, Dan, you're doing some great work, uh, and we're I, we're running out of time, uh, so it's it's I want to wrap up. If they you do a podcast, where can they find your podcast? Yeah, well, actually, so we've been on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, Dan Rodriguez, Ralph Baxter, and I we are in. We have something new actually in the works. So I, I can't quite say what it is, but I hope that we'll be putting it out there pretty soon. But I, I you know I blog a little bit on Legal Tech Lever is my my blog page. I don't blog as much as I should, but uh, and I'll have some different videos and some projects we're working on that'll be released there. And I'm on Twitter at Dan Lina as well. You know, I also encourage, try to encourage more and more of my students that you know, LinkedIn is pretty standard now, but the opportunities to be on LinkedIn and Twitter and engage with, with people like you and, and other leaders in the industry. But those are some places people can find me and I encourage them to connect with me. Great. Dan, thanks so much for talking to us today and keep up the good work, man. It's good talking all to right. you. Yeah, you you as well, Steve. Thank you for all, all you do. And, and it was a real pleasure to be with you here today. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.